0: If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to join me in James chapter 5. We have been working through a study on paradoxes. Things that seemingly do not make sense. They are counterintuitive, yet when we study them out, we find them to be core truth for our spiritual lives. Here in James chapter 5, James is going to be intensely practical, and his entire letter is somewhat of a spiritual manual. I find that James' tone here in chapter 5 is corrective in nature. How many of you have ever been told that you need to have an attitude adjustment? Yeah. You need an attitude adjustment. That's what James is going to do. Very directly, speaking to believers, he's going to address our attitude in the midst of tumultuous days. And in doing so, he will convey another paradoxical truth. Now make no mistake about it, James is writing to God's people. James is writing to believers who are aching, for relief. In this context, he understands that some of the recipients of this letter are no doubt suffering with persecution. They're enduring trials. By the time we get to chapter 5, we have come full circle from what he wrote back in chapter 1 when he said, "'My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations.'" Make a business decision to endure the trials of life with an abiding joy. And we're coming full circle now. In chapter 5, he's back to this suffering. He's back to these trials. And he's addressing the way that we navigate them, our attitudes. I see in all of this, the mandate that he will deliver is that we are to wait with hope on the coming day of the Lord. And it is there that I find the paradox, wait patiently to go. Wait to go. We're living in an age of impatience. I don't know if you are, maybe I am living in an age of impatience. I hate to wait, whether it's waiting in line whether it's waiting in traffic, whether it is waiting for food, the fact is, waiting is now about more countercultural than it has ever been. I studied and I found this to be true. During the average lifetime, a person will spend two years of their life calling people who do not answer. And if I have an unrecognizable number on my cell phone, I'm one of those people. You're going to leave a voicemail. As I studied further, I noted this. A person will spend three years in meetings. And if you go to church, that's more like 33 years in meetings. The average person will spend five years of their life waiting in line. Five years of your life waiting when you add it up over and again waiting is a part of life not just our natural life but our spiritual life we cannot avoid the teaching of waiting patiently within scripture going back to the old testament we'll note that the psalmist said wait patiently for the lord he is exhorting us to do just that. Abraham, who after he had patiently endured, obtained the promise. Along with, the writer of Hebrews says, all those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. It is our legacy, spiritually speaking, to wait patiently. Even Jesus himself waited. Even Jesus himself endured the cross, the contradiction of sinners, despising the shame, waiting for the glory that was to come. You cannot mature spiritually, you cannot grow in Christ until you learn to wait patiently on relief from the Lord. Now as James writes this, not only is it intensely practical, I know that it is intensely personal. James was there when the Lord Jesus Christ ascended, and in Acts chapter 1, the angels address the group that was gathered, and they say, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. James was there watching Jesus ascend, hearing the angels say, he, just like you saw him go, is coming again. It was very personal. It was very real to James. I have no doubt that James recalled the words of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse when Jesus said this in Matthew 24, For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. He heard Jesus say that. He was there when Jesus ascended. James believed that Jesus Christ was coming again. Now he did not know when Jesus was coming, but he believed that Jesus was coming. He did not know whether or not it would be in his lifetime, but he was settled on the fact that Jesus Christ was coming again. They were living with expectancy and waiting patiently for it one wrote this their implicit belief in christ's promised return coupled with the grinding realities of life made them constantly breathe even so come lord jesus an enviable cry for them waiting on jesus required patience for two reasons One, they believed fully that it was going to happen, and secondarily, the grinding realities of life made them long for it. We can identify with that. I believe, unfortunately, due to spiritual immaturity, we probably want Christ to come more for the grinding realities of life than we do wait for Him expectantly, according to Scripture. Life's hard. And James is getting right down to brass tacks. He's talking to believers and he's saying, you need an attitude adjustment. You've got to change the way you're navigating life. You've got to change the way you're serving. You've got to change the way that your perspective is on this world. He begins in James chapter 5 and verse 7. And he starts right out of the gate strong. Be patient. Be patient, therefore, brethren. Unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, look, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he received the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth at the door. Three times in those verses, James is causing us to see the nearness, the fact of the coming of the Lord. It is interesting to me that there are three words used in the New Testament concerning the return of Jesus Christ. And the word that he uses in verses 7 and 8 are emphasizing the physical presence of Jesus Christ. Being alongside of the physical return, the arrival of Jesus Christ, the significance of this for these suffering and scattered and persecuted believers is this, they are longing for the presence of Jesus Christ, their King. They're longing for Jesus Christ to physically be present and to set things right. They knew that when Jesus Christ came, and when Jesus Christ returned, and when Jesus Christ was physically there, everything would be alright. It's the same sensation we have. When he comes again, it will be all right. But for right now, it's anything but all right. James is exhorting these believers in the meantime to stay the course. In the meantime, stick it out. In the meantime, stay in the race. In your ache for relief and in your ache to do something, in your ache to go, wait. But what do I do? I have to be patient. I've already addressed. It's a terrible assignment. It's better where Jesus is. When Jesus returns, all that ails us will come to an end. I ache for that moment, but in the meantime, be patient. Patient. This is an imperative from James. You could understand this to have an exclamation point at the end of it. You need an attitude adjustment, and the attitude adjustment is this straightforward be patient. This is not a resignation, this is not a passive thing. This is an expectant waiting on the Lord. This is my perspective on life. Even the word that he uses here refers to retaliation. Refuse to retaliate when you are mistreated. Have a long holding out on your mind before you erupt in protest. Stay put. Stand fast. When rather you'd like to run away, stay in the race. Don't move. You feel this ache to go, stand still patiently endure, don't lash out, don't strike back. Everything in us wants to say, but Lord, this is unjust. I don't know that you see this as unfair as it actually is. Will you ever come and make things right? And the resounding answer from James is yes. You make the decision to be patient. What do I center my patience on? The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord draweth nigh. Be patient. He's coming. You will be rescued from all of this. G. Campbell Morgan wrote this, the thought of the coming of Christ is the light on the path which makes the present bearable. He said, I never lay my head on my pillow without thinking that maybe before morning dawns that, quote, morning will have dawned. I never begin my work in the morning without thinking that perhaps he may interrupt my work and begin his own. I can say to you with assurance based on scripture, if you wait, it will get better. In fact, Paul wrote in Romans 8, for I reckon, he's saying, I have made a decision based on facts and sure evidence that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. No matter the amount of suffering you and I may encounter in this life, it cannot compare to the glory that will arrive when Jesus Christ takes us home. It's not even worthy to be compared. So if James steps up and he looks at me and says, you need an attitude adjustment, believer, and the attitude adjustment is you've got to be decisive about this and the decision you've got to make is you've got to be patient. The scripture never tells us something that it does not equip us to do. Be patient. So how should I behave while I wait patiently? Note this with me in verse 7. We should rest in our limitations. Here's what he says in verse 7, behold, that's him saying, look, I have an illustration for you of the kind of patience you should exhibit. The husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. You say, now, help me out, pastor. I don't know a lot of Bibleese. Husbandman, that's a farmer. You say, okay, I got that part. What is early rain and what is latter rain? Well, since I have incredible experience with farming, I'll explain it to you. The only thing I've done in North Carolina is grow tall fescue and not well. The early rain was rain that came and it softened up the hard-baked soil so that it could be plowed up and seeded. The latter rain was necessary to bring the harvest to fruition, and the better or the more the rain was, the better the crop in the end. And in the meantime, between the early and the latter rain, the farmer had a lot of work to do while he waited. Now, I could be wrong, as I've already referenced, I'm not a farmer. But as I understand it, the most difficult thing about farming isn't the physical labor, but rather the mental wear and tear. You never know what the weather is going to do. And that's the exact point that James is communicating here. He's telling believers, be patient. And then he gets our attention like a parent and he says, behold, stop what you're doing and look at the farmer." who waits patiently, patiently and long for the early and the latter rains. He wants me to see the farmer. And then he immediately talks about the weather, and I can make some immediate observations from what James is telling me. The first thing I note is this. Farmers work really hard with things that are under their control. That means they have to prepare the soil, that means they have to seed, that means they have to weed, they they don't just sit on their hands and expect a crop, they work with things that are under their control. But a farmer, according to James' illustration, has to depend on some things that are entirely outside of their control, like the elements which they desperately need from the crops to make it. They have to then understand their limitations. One said, all farmers must patiently submit to this process. To fight against it, to bite their nails, to insist they must have fruit in the middle of the process is futile. What is it that James is saying to believers? You exercise no control over when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. The fact is, there is much, the majority, the greater portion of your life will happen without your capacity to control it. But there are some things that you can control. And you and I, as we patiently wait for Jesus to return, should rest in our limitations. That's not resignation, that is resolve, that is determination, that is decisiveness. I do the things that I can do, I stay the course. I do the right thing, I instill spiritual discipline, I'm in the word, I'm praying, the farmer understands the truth of resting in his limitation, I can patiently endure when I do the same. Not only that, I have to resist my own logic. James apparently understands that you're going to be listening to this message and he knows how hard-headed you are. How many of you are hard-headed? How many of you just woke up, like you dozed off through that first point, and now you're kind of back? James knows this about us, as does the Holy Spirit. Notice how he starts verse 8. He starts verse 7 by saying, be patient. He comes back in verse 8, and he says, oh, oh yeah, be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh establish your heart, make firm your heart, prop up your heart. He's urging the believer as a decisive act to strengthen their inner man. He's teaching us patience is not passivity, it takes work. You must be decisive. You have to set your heart to be patient. You have to remind yourself that this is true, that what is true? That the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. The coming of the Lord draweth nigh. James is saying sometimes doubt will creep in. And you have to firm up your inner heart. You have to prop up your heart. You have to remind yourself that this is true. The coming of Jesus draweth nigh. It is near. It is close. It is soon to happen. Remind yourself of that. And when you yourself begin to doubt it, say, no, it's true according to Scripture. Jesus Christ is coming again. Establish that in your heart. Here, the naysayers have been since the first century. The fact is, the naysayers have been around since the first century. Peter wrote this in 2 Peter 3, knowing this first, that in the last days there shall come scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. There will come naysayers who say, this is foolishness that you believe that Jesus Christ is going to come again. By the time Peter gets down to verse 8 in his letter, he'll address believers. He'll say, the naysayers are out there. Notice what he says in verse 8. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Logic defies the reality of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Resist that. Establish in your heart that you should be patient unto the coming of the Lord. Be ye patient establish your heart, it is nearby. That's what he's teaching us. This helped me. To a child in October, Christmas may seem an eternity away. But to the aged, White-haired grandmother who has weathered the snows of many winters and numerous trips to the best department stores. Christmas is not just near, it is here. Thus, when James says Christ's coming is near, he's writing as one who has been taught to see the years of his life according to the unbeginning, unending lifetime of the Most High. The coming of Jesus is near. You say, yeah, near like Christmas to a kid in October or near like it's tomorrow. It's near. Now, I want to address something that I think is important. I have noted creeping into the church, into the body of Christ, in these days, a sense of panic and fret and worry. A spirit and a tone of doom and gloom has worked its way in, and I want to call a time out, and I want to point us back to this place within Scripture, and I want to say the coming of the Lord is drawing nigh, but there is stuff that we have to do in the meantime. And if you could allow me to just for a moment address some from the older generation who have basically deemed that this is the end and that all morality has died and their generation was the last to do anything at any point in the history of time. Can I caution you to mute the doom and gloom because there are generations behind you that still want to serve Jesus. There are generations behind you that still feel like God is at work and there are some who still want to do things and believe that God can and if you constantly defeat them with doom and gloom and that this is the end and it's all over, you're resting instead of resisting in your own logic. And what he's saying to us is it is nearby, but in the meantime, you've got a lot of work to do. Resist your own logic that it won't happen. Resist your logic that it's over until it does happen. Rest in the fact that he is coming again and it's true. And anytime doubt creeps in, remind yourself, no, it's close. Then I know this third. We have to remember our ledger. You say, pastor, you never do this with outlines. What is this? You got R's and L's. Huh? There's a tip jar on the way out, you can just tip for good outlines. It won't happen next week or perhaps the week I I know it won't happen next week. I've already written it. It won't happen next week. We have to remember our ledger. A ledger is a book or collection of accounts in which accounting transactions are recorded. Here's what one wrote patience bears with other people when they don't share our cadence, our practices, our priorities And our sense of timing. He's going to say something very pointed in verse 9 momentarily. How many of you have ever had one of those days? Yeah. How many of you have enough sense at this stage of life to know maybe it'd be a good day to be left alone? Yeah. I know what that feels like. Today's probably not a good day. I'm probably going to say things that I wish I could take back. I'm probably going to hurt some feelings. I'm probably going to come across mean. The reality is suffering wears us down. And what happens so often, and this is what James is going to address, when we get beat down by suffering, when we get little to no sleep, when we're frayed around the edges, who do we take it out on? We take it out on those who are closest to us. I honestly believe that's the connection here. In verse 9, because as they're suffering, as they're enduring the suffering, it has produced a grumbling spirit. Notice in verse 9, grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. You can't escape what he's done. He has used three references to the coming of Jesus Christ to correct our behavior. Be patient rest in your limitations look at the farmer do what you can do and leave the rest to god resist your logic your logic is going to tell you the naysayers are right he's not come. no it's close it's not over yet resist your logic it's not over yet it's close work until he gets here remember your ledger remember that in the meantime your behavior matters the judge is standing at the door your ring doorbell camera has already picked him up he's getting ready to push the button don't forget your book of accounting don't forget the bema seat I love what one said, impatience with God often leads to impatience with God's people. Times were tough. The culture was cruel. These were outsiders. Their feelings were frayed and the tendency is to take out their frustration on anyone that was near them. The reality is those that are near are not the problem. The problem that he's talking about is something deeper. The word grudge that he uses here is speaking of an internal, never expressed, inner monologue, a a carrying a grudge against someone that is kept within. And the tense of the verb is, yeah, this is taking place amongst believers. You have a grudge against other people, and very strongly James says, stop it. Remember back in chapter 1, he challenged the believers, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. He comes back in verse 26 of that chapter and he says, if there is a believer who does not bridle their tongue, their religion is in vain. In James chapter 3, he reminded us that the tongue is is a destructive thing. It's like a fire. It can do a ton of damage. It is inevitable. It is inescapable that some talking, some murmuring was going on, and the recipients of this letter needed to be reminded to stop grudging against each other. One of the most striking pictures of the New Testament church in the book of Acts is when the church at Antioch launches. Gentiles are being saved. Gentiles are being added to the church. The church of Jerusalem sends an emissary to the church at Antioch. It is Barnabas. Barnabas is to go and check out the church at Antioch. And basically, he's got to put a stamp of approval on it for the church at Jerusalem. And when he gets to the church, grasps that Antioch was a sinful city. And, and there's a lot of new believers. And I'll assure you of this. They did not look yet like the church at Jerusalem. I'll assure you, they didn't talk yet like the seasoned Bible-knowing veterans at the Church of Jerusalem. But when Barnabas arrived there, something amazing is said. He saw the grace of God, and he strengthened the believers. When he could have arrived on scene and taken pot shots at what was happening, rather he saw grace. This is what James is saying. You have a tendency to look around at everybody else and grudge against them. Remember that you too will stand before the Lord and answer for your action and the day is coming where that inner monologue, that groaning and grudging that's been going on on the inside will be opened up and exposed. Let's say for a moment that my parents as I was growing up were terrible parents For the sake of illustration. Let's say that at the age of five, my parents decided to leave me home alone. Now at five years old, I was highly capable of caring for myself. If my parents left and my room was an absolute nightmare, it was a disaster, it was turned upside down, it was a mess, and my parents were leaving and they said, we're going out to dinner and we'll come home. And when we come home, our expectation is that your room is clean. My parents would leave and I'd think to myself, okay, I know the assignment. My room needs to be cleaned by the time they get back. I know where they're going to eat. I know they're going to be gone for a while. Don't know exactly when they're coming back, but I bet I have time. I have time to fire up the Nintendo. It was the 80s. I have time to shoot nerve hoops. I have time to play and do what I want, and eventually, I will clean my room before my parents return. Now, in the meantime, while my parents are off to dinner and I'm home, enjoying myself and my independence and autonomy, a storm rolls in. Clouds are really dark. It gets really unnaturally dark outside, and lightning bolts are flashing, and the thunder's really loud, and the rain starts to come down, and after all, I'm five, so I'm a little nervous about this storm. And I start to think this, you know, prior to the storm, I I didn't really want mom and dad to come home, but now that the storm is here, it'd be better if they just showed up on the scene. And I might begin to say things in my heart like, I want you to come home now because of this storm. And then I might, as I said that, look over my shoulder and see my room and go, "Uh uh-oh, I'm torn a little bit. I want you to come now, but I haven't yet cleaned my room. What happens if you come to save me from this storm, but you see that my room is not yet cleaned up? I'm in trouble, and I believe there are a lot of Christians who audaciously say, I'll tell you what I do. I pray, even so, come, Lord Jesus, and your room's a nightmare. I'll tell you what I do, brother. I just get down and pray, even so, come, Lord. How about you clean your room before he's on the porch? There are so many self-righteous individuals who are graceless and who have learned the language, but the reality is their room is a disaster. That's what James is saying. You need to understand the judge is on the threshold. Yes, you should patiently wait for the coming of the Lord. You should rest in your limitations. Resist your logic. He's almost here. But when you begin to grudge and you begin to excuse yourself, remember, he is the judge and he's right there on the threshold ready to ring the doorbell. You may not have a lot of time to get things right. Now's the time to get things right. You may not have a lot of time to alter your behavior. Now's the time to alter your behavior. Square things up. If you're going to pray with boldness, even so come Lord Jesus, do it with a clean room. The last thing I note here, as he says, to recall your legacy. You want to develop some patience? How about you have some examples to follow? Look back at your heritage. He said this in verse 10. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Now again, this is so beautifully written, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Three times he has told us that the Lord is coming again. Here, he even somewhat addresses it. You've seen the end of the Lord, and he has given us explicit, very practical illustrations. The first is take a look at the farmer. Now he comes back and he says, student, look at the prophets. Now, everyone that was reading this in this time would have immediately seen or remembered some stories. Maybe they would have sat there and they would have remembered Elijah, who did the right thing and he had to deal with a very hostile Ahab and Jezebel who threatened to kill him when he was only doing the right thing. Maybe they would have remembered Hosea, whose personal shame and sacrifice was exposed as he repeatedly brought his unfaithful wife back home as an example of God's unfailing covenant for Israel. Listen to Hosea's assignment. This comes from Hosea 1-2. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. Here's the beginning of Hosea's ministry. The Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed a great whoredom departing from the Lord. Go and get a wife of whoredoms and then every time she behaves unfaithfully to you, go and retrieve her against your own pride and for your own shame and bring her back again. And when she leaves, go get her and bring her back as a depiction of my unfailing covenant for Israel. Not an assignment I want. I think perhaps even more stunning is Jeremiah who preached truth to the nation, faced constant persecution. On one occasion, Jeremiah is thrown into a well He gets stuck in the mud at the bottom of the well. He would have died in the mud bottom of the well if not for the pity of some passers-by who brought him out of the well. Think of Ezekiel. This is maybe the toughest assignment in the Old Testament. His wife is suddenly taken from him in death, and God says to him something that honestly blows my mind. Listen to Ezekiel 24, 15. The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, behold... I take away from thee the desire of thine eyes with a stroke. What does he mean? He means, Ezekiel, I know that you love your wife. I know that you care and think good of your wife. She is the desire of your eyes. And I'm telling you what I'm going to do is I'm going to take her in a stroke. Gone. Notice what then God says to him that he has to do. Yet neither shalt thou mourn nor weep, neither shall thy tears run down, forbear to cry, make no mourning for the dead, bind the tire of thine head upon thee, put on thy shoes upon thy feet, cover not thy lips, eat not the bread of man. Here's what Ezekiel says. So I spake unto the people in the morning, and at even my wife died, and I did in the morning as I was commanded." That's a horrible assignment. Ezekiel, I'm going to take your wife from you. You go to work tomorrow. Don't even let tears roll down your cheeks. And Ezekiel says, I did what he said in the morning. That night, he took my wife like he said. I woke up the next day and did as I was commanded. They may be thought of Micah, who was ridiculed and slandered for his message, of Zechariah, who was murdered, of Amos, and of Haggai, who suffered. Maybe they thought of Isaiah who was eventually placed in the hollow of a tree and sawn in half by his own king. Prophets were not commissioned by God to make friends and influence people. The fact is they couldn't compromise the message. They were never guaranteed success. What is James doing? James is making me see that this is our plight in life as believers. Recall your legacy. It's never been easy. You've never been accepted. On down. Through time. This has been the plight of those who follow the Lord. What a misery. We're we're prone to feel sorry for them. Yet he comes back and he says, Behold, we count them happy. What? I don't want Ezekiel's assignment. I don't want Hosea's assignment. I assure you of this: I do not want to be put in the hollow of a tree and sawn in half. Some of you want to do that to me, but I don't want that. I don't want to be hated by the God. I don't want any of it. But James says that's always been the way for us and we count them happy who endure. I need a little language help. He's not talking about emotional happiness. He's talking about the objective, unalterable approval and reward of God. He's saying to everybody who is patiently enduring, the ones who are truly blessed and truly happy are those who endure. Remember Job, he says. You've seen the end of the Lord, and God is truly pitiful and full of tender mercy. Even Job, who lost everything, was willing to say, I know my Redeemer liveth. Even Job, who lost everything, saith, I know the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. It was Job who said, by faith, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He is enduring. He's not happy about it. I don't mean that he had a smile and a giggle when he lost everything, but he objectively wanted the unalterable presence and approval of God. He just remembered his life. That's what James is trying to do. James is getting very practical with us. He says, look, when it's all said and done, don't forget that God is good. Don't forget that he's full of mercy, and don't forget that he is pitiful. This will not overwhelm you. You will end up with him. We live in a world that is not all right, and we have to hold at bay the fretting and the panic that tends to want to creep in. Our attitude stinks, and James steps in, and he says, you need an attitude adjustment, and here it is, be patient, exclamation point. Why? Because the coming of the Lord will happen be patient. Just like the farmer, rest in your limitations. You can't control everything. Do what you can. Resist your logic. Listen, you're going to doubt that it will happen. You're going to sense that relief will never arrive. The naysayers have been around from the first century. Establish it firm in your heart. Prop up your heart. The day of the Lord is close. It will It will happen, and it will get better. Remember your ledger while you pray out, Lord come, don't forget to grudge not against one another, but rather correct your spirit and remember that you will answer. The judge is on the threshold. He's ready to ring the doorbell. Straighten up your actions. And when you feel like As I tend to, I am the best party thrower. I throw great pity parties that I'm alone and no one's had it as hard as me and no one's ever had to do what I had. Recall your legacy and just remember, this is the plight of all those who have ever served the Lord and we count them happy, which endure. They get the approval of God. This is corrective in nature, but it's so necessary for us to a moment like this just remember that God is good. Can I invite you to please bow your heads right where you are just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.